This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 4th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, freelance science writer Ian Graber-Steele joins us to discuss what might be the oldest citizen science project, observing the cicada's life cycle. Next, researcher Jason Chin talks with me about expanding the genetic code to make novel molecules inside bacterial cells and to help them avoid infections. Finally, in a sponsored segment, science's editor-in-chief Holden Thorpe talks with retired surgeon and philanthropist Gary Michelson about his views on how to best support biomedical research. First up this week, we have freelance science writer Ian Graber-Steele. He's going to talk about what might be the oldest citizen science project, observing periodical cicadas. Hi, Ian. Hi, Sarah. Let's set the scene for listeners who are not on the eastern coast of the United States. What is going on right now with cicadas? Brood X is currently swarming everywhere, although personally, I prefer to call them a cavalcade of cicadas rather than the swarm. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, they are quite noisy and everywhere. They're big, too. I don't know if everyone knows. They're about the length maybe of your pinky, a little bit shorter if you are if you have long fingers. And, you know, they come out of the ground, they do their mating and lay their eggs, and then they're done for, what, 17 years, right? Yeah, well, Brut X is a 17-year cicada. There are also three Brut 13 cicadas as well who stay underground for 13 years. How do they start that next step in their life cycle? They lay eggs and then what happens? The females make an incision into some tree branches, lay the eggs there. After a couple of weeks, they hatch, fall onto the ground, tunnel on through. They stay within about 60 centimeters of the surface, pretty much attach themselves to tree roots, and they suck on xylem fluid that comes from trees. And we believe that they track the time period by monitoring the xylem flow in the trees. As winter comes, xylem flow takes a nosedive, and they likely track the passage of seasons that way. We're going to talk about the citizen scientist aspect of this. And as I mentioned in my intro, this goes back a long way to the 1800s, you say in your story? To the 1830s. There was a physician, his name was Gideon Smith. 
who, aside from being a physician, also raised silkworms and was an editor at The American Farmer, which was one of the premier farming publications at the time, and ultimately ended up turning to the first citizen science experiment that I'm aware of in American history to try and help him map out the distribution of different cicada broods. So how did he pull together citizens in, what, the 1830s? He sent out a bunch of letters to different national publications and have them run essentially advertisements asking for people to send correspondence back confirming where cicadas were and weren't. Not only did he hear back from people, he actually was able to confirm the 13-year cicada. Until then, they hadn't been properly documented. And one individual reached out to him and said, well, around here in Missouri, the cicadas come out every 13 years. Smith wasn't so sure about that. And so he spent the next several years before that brew was expected to emerge in, I believe it was 1858, setting up correspondence with different people to see where there were reports of cicadas that would emerge every 13 years. And he was able to verify them as being distinct from 17-year cicadas about 10 years before anybody else did. So now we have maps of where they're emerging and also the timing of these different brews. That's from way back in the 1800s. But today, there's also apps where people are participating in citizen science around cicadas. How are they different than what happened back in the 1830s? On one hand, there's the sheer scale of it. Somebody who would follow in Smith's footsteps, Charles Marlatt, who worked for the uh, USDA in 1902, he did a similar mailing campaign, but he let, sent out 15,000 letters across the country for 1,000 responses. As of the last time I talked to Gene Kritsky, the person who founded Cicada Safari, which is the big app at the moment for reporting cicada populations, good Lord, uh, they had over <laughs> a quarter million photos that had been sent to them. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And 8,000 videos. And they've added capability to upload videos because an 11-second clip of chorusing cicadas, which is uh, especially when male cicadas will congregate in trees and sing out for females, that doesn't just confirm that somebody might have seen a one-off cicada or potential straggler, but that there is a presence of a more than likely successfully breeding population there. And so what can scientists do with 250,000 images of cicadas? There is a massive increase in resolution here. In fact, in 2017, just before the app was founded, we noticed a brood of stragglers split off from brood X in the Cincinnati area that ultimately emerged again 17 years later. That was the first time that scientists had successfully seen a group of stragglers who emerged early come out in enough force to reproduce, overwhelm predators, and then be able to emerge again. With that sort of resolution, Gene Kriske and the team noticed something similar happening last year. It could be a repeat with stragglers. So that resolution is incredible just as well. It's also become a bit of a shift in the purpose of citizen science because citizen science is always where cicadas are concerned. It's always been about mapping out distribution, just figuring out when and where they're coming. Mm -hmm, observational. Exactly. But now we're starting to use that same data in more nuanced sort of ways, like trying to cross-reference it with temperature to figure out if we can more accurately predict when they're going to emerge. Right. So air temperature would be much easier than soil temperature. 
Exactly. Is the Citizen app going to help answer some of these big questions about cicada cycles? Like, for example, how they keep track of years? Do you think that that's going to come out of these apps? One of the biggest things it's going to be useful for is something like population level stressors. With cicadas, you can get a good snapshot every 13 to 17 years of when they're emerging, when they're not. So that can tell you a lot about population dynamics. However, because of how complicated the life cycle is, it's very difficult to disentangle the different effects of different stressors. So if there's an impact in the population, was it caused by perhaps there being a cocktail of different pesticides in an urban environment, by trees being cut down, by climate change? Right. With the increased resolution that we get from the massive amount of reporting through these apps, in fact, Michael J. Robb, one researcher I spoke to, recommended cross-referencing that data with satellite telemetry to see where development has taken place and see how that has affected populations. For those sort of population level trends, I think it's gonna be absolutely invaluable. Where there is a greater challenge in applying citizen science is number one, everybody pays attention to periodical cicadas. However, your more annual cicadas, your dog day cicadas, those green or slightly orangish and blackish ones that you see every year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those are woefully undersampled and they're harder to find. Periodical cicadas have just the worst survival instincts. You walk up to them, pick them up, and they just go along with it. My six-year-old has collected so many. They have no instinct to get away from something that could potentially be a predator, but in this case is not. They'll make something called a predator aversion call, but mm -hmm. it's, they're not going to do much else. And so with those more annual cicadas, they're massively undersampled. In fact, one researcher I talked to, Dr. Catherine Dana, she studies a prairie cicada. Mind you, her best data for population trends are still in museum annals. Mm -hmm. So for something like that, we need to get more people to pay attention to cicadas outside of just the big brood events with periodical cicadas. Otherwise, that's going to be a limit. And answering some biological questions, like, for example, the biggest one I can think of is why cicadas very specifically tend to emerge either one or four years early or late. If you have a group of stragglers, they're not 17, they're not 13, there's this other interval off of that number? Exactly. They'll merge either one or four years early or late. Interesting. Yeah. And there's a, a specific trend there. What other big questions about cicadas do you want to see answers to? A lot of people might assume that because cicadas are so ubiquitous that we know a lot about them. In many aspects, we do. However, there are still a number of mysteries surrounding cicadas. That one to four thing I just mentioned, there are theories. Uh, Monty Lloyd, one researcher back in the 90s, uh, believed that maybe it was to fall out of sync with fungal pathogens, which mm -hmm. I'll touch on that in a moment. They have the most interesting relationship with fungi of any insect I know about. They could be to throw off predators. You imagine that there's going to be a population bump after a brood emerges, but four years later, that's likely slowed down a bit. But there's a lot of variability. And when cicadas emerge, based on Michael J. Robb, the researcher I mentioned a minute ago, has noticed that in areas where there's different amounts of sunlight, they can emerge differently. And keeping in mind that cicadas have a set number of molts when they're underground. They molt four times, but they never stop growing. 
and yet somehow they can shorten or extend that period by nearly a quarter of their life, even though they never stop growing, have a set number of molts. That is rather interesting, especially that we don't quite understand why that is. Or when it comes to the fungi I mentioned, there's two very interesting sort of families there. A lot of people have heard of cordyceps, the fungus that attacks uh, ants and a number of other insects sprouts out through their heads. Yeah. Cicadas have essentially tamed the bane of insect existence, according to Chris Simon from the University of Connecticut. When I spoke to her, we have not confirmed this with all 3,000 species of cicadas, but 17 times throughout history, we think that they formed a symbiotic relationship with cordyceps. And we're not exactly sure why that is or why the two other fungal pathogens that do affect them, how they ultimately control the brains of males and turn them into hypersexual flying salt shakers of fungal spores. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. All right. Appreciate it. Ian Graber-Steele is a freelance science writer based in Northern Illinois. You can find a link to the article we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with researcher Jason Chin about reducing duplications in the genetic code in order to expand its vocabulary. Our genetic code has done great things. Yes, DNA underlies everything our cells build and inheritance and evolution, but there are limits. The program for turning what's written in genes into proteins is based on codons, three letters of DNA that specify which amino acid to add next to a growing peptide chain. There's 64 of these codons, these three-letter groups, and of course, we're only working with 20 amino acids to build all the proteins and cells. This Week in Science, Jason Chin and colleagues wrote about expanding the genetic vocabulary. Hi, Jason. Hi. Let's start with the redundant codons that I mentioned in the intro. We have several instances where the genetic code, you know, it says, oh, I want that amino acid. Oh, this other code also wants that same amino acid. So you see that as a space to introduce new things. Exactly. So biology uses 64 codons, all combinations of the four bases to make triplets. And these are used to encode just 20 amino acids. So this means that there are for most amino acids, in fact, they're encoded by more than one codon. And so one question was, could you reduce the number of codons that are used to encode a particular amino acid and thereby create codons that are free that you could then use to encode other monomers for polymer synthesis? Right. So if, say, if you're reading along a code and you get, oh, it's red, that calls for serine. Oh, it's blue, that calls for serine. Oh, it's green, that calls for serine. Well, why don't we just say all reds are serine and then we can use those other colors for other amino acids? Exactly. Okay. Maybe this seems straightforward in a test tube to some of us who are familiar with lab bench work, but is this something that you can do genome-wide? Can you go out there and say, okay, every time we see this instance of a codon, we're gonna change it to one of its synonyms? In previous work, we'd spent quite a lot of time looking at this question. And what we'd been able to figure out were rules by which we could take particular codons and replace them with particular synonyms that work. Not all synonymous replacements work in the same way that you can imagine if you took a, a very long book and um, you took a particular word and you said, 
let me see which synonyms maintain the meaning of the sentences throughout the entire book. Some of those synonyms might work in particular sentences, but they might not work in every occurrence uh, throughout the book. And really what we did in previously was to figure out synonyms that would work really at every occurrence where a particular synonym that we wanted to remove occurred in the genome uh, of the bacteria that we're working in E. coli. So that's a pretty grand task to start with. How much of the genome did you have to rewrite? Starting from completely synthetic DNA that we made ultimately by chemical synthesis in a test tube, we replaced the entire genome of the cell, which was 4 million base pairs. And within that chemically synthesized DNA, we'd replaced more than 18,000 occurrences of serine codons with their synonyms. You've got these substituted codons, these synonymous codons scattered all over the genome. So normal proteins get made, the cells can go about their business, but using fewer codons. What do you do with these blank codons, these unassigned codons that you have in your pocket? The first thing we wanted to do was to take the machinery that reads those codons out of the cell. Previously, we'd removed the codons from the cell, but we still had the residue, if you like. We still had the ability to read those codons, even though the codons weren't actually there in the genome. So the first thing we did was to remove the tRNAs that normally read those codons. And that showed that we actually had removed you know, sufficient codons from the genome to allow us to do that. So we removed the tRNAs and in one case, a release factor. Because you were able to take it out and the cell lived on, that means that things were going well without those codons. Exactly. So the ability to remove the tRNAs from the cell, the tRNAs that read the codons that we believe we'd removed, provides good evidence that we'd removed most, if not all, of those codons from the genome. This is a really cool part of this paper. So once you remove the tRNAs and you had replaced all of these codons, your cells were extremely resistant to virus. Can you talk about why that is? Because all of biology uses the same genetic code, it uses the same 64 codons and the same 20 amino acids. That means that actually viruses also use the same genetic code and they use the cell's machinery to build the viral proteins to actually make and reproduce the virus. And that means that if you've made a cell that no longer reads the standard genetic code because we've removed the tRNAs that read the codons that we've removed from the genome of the cell, that now the viral DNA, when the virus tries to infect the cell, the virus's genetic code also can't be read properly. And because we haven't changed the sequence of the virus, the virus contains the codons that we've removed from the genome of the cell and that the cell is no longer able to read. So this means that the cell is no longer able to help the virus make copies of itself and that the virus therefore no longer propagates in these cells. The idea here isn't to rewrite the world so we're resistant to viruses. It's much more we're going to make laboratory or uh, biopharmaceutical bacteria that can go about their lives without being interfered with with viruses, right? Exactly. So the ability to make things like insulin that are made using cells, using often using bacterial cells to make, for example, protein therapeutics like insulin, the way that these are made in large fermenters can be subject contamination with viruses, particular types of viruses called phage, and being able to do protein production with cells that are resistant to viruses provides a way to protect the cells that are producing the drugs or other products from viral attack. 
That's what happens when you take out the tRNA and you've replaced all the synonymous codons. But going back to your bacterial cells, they can also now start incorporating different amino acids. How does that work? So after we've removed the codons from the genome, that allowed us to remove the tRNAs. And at that point, there's nothing that reads those codons in the cell, and those codons simply don't exist in the cell. But now we can put new genes into the cell that contain those codons, and we can also put machinery to specifically read those codons into the cell. And that's new amino acid cell tRNA synthetases and tRNAs. And that machinery we use to basically read the new copies of the codons that we've introduced into the cell and use them not to incorporate serine, but to incorporate different non-natural or non-canonical building blocks that we might want to incorporate into new polymers that we can write the sequences of in DNA. So this gets past the hurdle of only having 20 amino acids with which to build all the proteins in a cell. You can make much more exotic things because you can incorporate different amino acids that you make in the lab. And the cells themselves are doing this because you've added the enzymes needed to say, oh, I recognize this codon. I'm going to bring this funky thing over and add it to a protein. Exactly. So we're, we're able to basically, by adding that new machinery to the cell, essentially reassign the codons that normally encoded serine to use them to encode essentially arbitrary new monomers that we can polymerize. And why would you want to do this? What kinds of things can you make by controlling how codons are assigned and how the translation happens? One of the things that we show is that we can actually make completely non-natural polymeric sequences. While it's been possible before to put single or multiple non-natural amino acids into proteins to, for example, study biology or make derivatives of proteins as protein therapeutics. In this work, we show that we can actually string together in sequence non-natural building blocks by reassigning multiple different codons in sequences. And this allows us to write, completely write the sequences of polymers by encoding the sequence that the monomers will appear in the chain in the sequence of codons in the DNA. Normally, say you wanted a modified protein, you might do, you know, something where you have it and then you you harvest it from a cell that's made it and then you alter it in a test tube. Here you're basically saying we're going to make the cell do all that work. Yeah. So what we've done is we've made cells in which we can write DNA sequences and those DNA sequences, we can have the cell read those DNA sequences using the machinery that we've added to the cell to build polymers for us to find sequences that are encoded in the DNA sequence that we've written into the cell. And this is really a sort of new way of thinking about encoding the synthesis of polymers, really. Wow. So it sounds like the cells are doing complicated chemistry for you, and it's something that you can scale up. Yeah, it's scalable because the cell is itself a renewable factory for for building these polymers once we've built the machinery into the cell to allow them to do that. It's scalable in that sense because you can It's a renewable factory where you can keep growing the cells and keep biosynthesizing the polymers. And it's also important to note that because the information is in the DNA, that means that you can make very easily make libraries of sequences and you can think about evolving the polymers um, and the macrocycles themselves for new function. What's next? Are you going to do this in a eukaryote? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I think there are several interesting directions. One is to consider the extent to which the genetic code can be compressed. What we've done in this work is to encode 
three non-natural building blocks, three non-natural monomers. In principle, we might be able to compress the genetic code to allow us to encode more non-natural monomers. And this would allow us to make more complicated polymeric sequences potentially. And then to explore genome synthesis in other organisms to see if we can compress their genetic codes. All right. Thank you so much, Jason. All right. Thank you very much. That was really good fun. Jason Chin is a program leader at the Medical Research Council, Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Up next, we have a sponsored segment in which we hear about ways to better support early career scientists and the new Michelson Philanthropies and Science Prize for Immunology. Hello, and a warm welcome to this sponsored interview from the Science AAAS Custom Publishing Office, brought to you by Michelson Philanthropies. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming two guests, Dr. Holden Thorpe, Editor-in-Chief of the Science Family of Journals, and Dr. Gary Michelson, Founder of the Michelson Medical Research Foundation and Co-Chair, together with his wife, Olia, of Michelson Philanthropies. Dr. Michelson is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon, an inventor who holds nearly 1,000 patents throughout the world, and the founder and funder of three private foundations. Michelson Philanthropies has recently entered into a partnership with Science AAAS to support a prize for early career scientists that will be known as the Michelson Philanthropies and Science Prize for Immunology. Compounding the honor of having Dr. Michelson on the line, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Thorpe to take over the microphone for a conversation with Dr. Michelson. Over to you, Dr. Thorpe. Thank you, Sean. And uh, Gary, thanks so much for all you're doing with us. It's really great to get the chance to talk to you today. Well, good morning, Holden. It's my pleasure. So uh, I think we're all interested in sort of what led you to your views about research and your, your role here. So tell me a little bit about your story and how it brought you to where you are in thinking about the future of science and immunology in particular. By training, I'm a board certified orthopedic spinal surgeon. And quite early in my career, I was dissatisfied with the tools that we had available and the procedures that we were doing. And that launched a 40-year romance with um, research science into spinal disorders. Most people, if you ask them, will say life is not fair. I, I think that you can look at your own children when they're about four or five years old and you're breaking the cookie in half. One of them will always say, that's not fair. The other child got the bigger half of the cookie. From my point of view, I've gotten too big a piece of the cookie. And so I think it's incumbent upon me to try to make the world a little less unfair, um, and particularly for the people that really have no voice. Fantastic. We hear people talk a lot about the word disruption. You use the word disruption talking about the kind of research that you want to do. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, this is interesting. Uh, actually, good science and inventions have a great deal in common. They uh, require one, intelligence, two, knowledge, three, imagination, four is daring, and five is perseverance. 
And the answer to your question is that what is new or yet to be discovered is like coloring outside of the known lines. It requires going outside of the box and it always disrupts the status quo. Let's, let's just take one example uh, about a disruptive change in science. A single vaccine that had not previously existed will affect the lives and the health and the well-being of billions of people and save millions of lives. We're living through that right now. This whole idea about mRNA vaccines is new. The idea of using a nanoparticle rather than a viral vector, that's new stuff. This is all disruptive stuff. And we're living through the impact of this. As a philanthropist, we fund many things, but nothing has the potential to have the greatest philanthropic return to help the most people in the most meaningful ways as medical research. And then within that vast domain, I think the answers are going to lie within the area of immunology. I believe that one of the most successful projects of all time, whether you like the result or not, was the Manhattan Project. You actually had nuclear physicists, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, mechanics, welders. You had all these people coming together to work for a single purpose. Uh, we don't do that enough in science. We, we have to de-silo all of these brilliant people. And, and it goes to NIH funding, by the way. We, we, we should not be funding individual scientists. We should be funding projects that require multidisciplinary inputs. It's the nature of the world now. So tell us what you think the federal government should do differently to get more of this kind of research going in the United States. Well, so the answer has to go to NIH because NIH is the largest single funder of academic medical research in this country. I think, first of all, the budget should be $100 billion a year. They shouldn't play games with um, trying to increase it for the rate of inflation. If you look at one project that NIH funded, the Human Genome Project, despite its price tag, it's estimated now that the return in terms of just economic growth has been $200 for every dollar invested. We can't afford to not fund NIH robustly. And so what changes should happen at NIH? Well, I believe they should adopt more of a venture capital model. In a venture capital model, you fund maybe 10 projects, not with a lot of money, a little bit of money. And along the way, some fall off the runway. You don't, you don't fund those anymore. And the two or the three that seem to be going along well, you continue to fund those. And if one of them makes it to the end, it more than reimburses you for the ones that failed and this one that now has succeeded. We don't do that in NIH. We don't do that in general in medical research because we tend to fund things that are just barely incremental. And there's an old saying that you cannot leap a chasm in several small steps. So the great scientific discoveries, the great inventions are all leaps. Yeah, and so as you think about that, do you have a sense of what's too high risk? I mean, how many failures are you willing to accept? Well, I, I don't have a limit. That, that's exactly the point. I don't feel bad at all if we fund 20 projects and not a single one succeeds, and we've done that, and we're doing that right now doesn't bother me a bit. Um, you know, Edison had tried all these different uh, filaments for a bulb and none of them worked. And somebody said to him, how's it feel to fail so many times? And he said, no, it's not a failure unless I stop. 
And so uh, how should the federal government adopt that same kind of outlook when it comes to failures of federally funded research? Well, that's a really interesting question because let's look at what's really going on right now. Um, there have been analyses done of how much of the research that NIH funds really succeeds. The estimate is somewhere around 10 to 12%. And the second problem is when you try to reproduce that 10 or 12%, only about half the time can you do it. So assuming for the moment that that's correct, it would call out for some very interesting changes. Number one, NIH should demand that every bit of research that it funds goes into at least a data bank. You can de-identify the ones that didn't succeed, but let somebody at least be able to search that to say, well, geez, I should not do that. That's already been done. That doesn't work. And then secondly, any research that it funds that gets published should be what they call enabling. That means that any, any postdoc can pick up the paper and reproduce the experiment easily. Every step of this recipe is right there. They can do it. And indeed, NIH should fund confirmatory research. It's inexpensive to do. And if it's on a key piece of research that people keep citing, they're going to rely on that, then it should be repeated to make sure it actually is true. So there's two real quick changes. Great. And so tell us how the prize competitions like the Michelson Prize for Immunology Research and the new Michelson Philanthropies and Science Prize for Immunology, how can they help accelerate the pace of innovation and in science? Well, these prizes do uh, a number of things. Once we fund them, um, they seem to have two, two benefits. One is they shine a spotlight on this problem of not funding the people who are at the ideal intersection of intellect, knowledge, imagination, daring, and perseverance. We're, we're not doing that, and we should be doing that. And the other thing it does is it alters the careers of these brilliant young scientists. It accelerates them by five to 10 years. Yeah, so tell us a little more about why you focus on early career investigators. Well, there was a gentleman named Bjorn, B-J-O-R-N, who did a, a study of the people who had won Nobel Prizes in the hard sciences. And it turned out that regardless of the age at which they were given the, the prize or whether they were even alive or dead, he went to, back to when they had published the work for which they won the prize. And it turned out about 80% of them had done the work before the age of 35. In fact, Einstein, I believe, quipped on his 35th birthday, if you haven't done it by now, you'll never do it. So he had done both of his theories of relativity before the age of 35. And yet in this country, because NIH is the primary funder, we simply don't fund those people. Uh, we're running out of time, but I wonder, is there anything else you'd like for our uh, listeners to hear from you as you think about the future of, of research and uh, its role in the future of humanity? Yeah, well, I, I think the truth is the return on investment for medical research dollars just in sheer economic terms is compelling. But then you, you factor in the cost of somebody in their family who is sick or dying, and it's priceless. How can we not do it? Yeah, well, we're certainly very committed to that at Science and the Science Family of Journals. So it's great to have people like you who see that th those things the same way we do. It's really been a pleasure talking to you, Gary. I'm so appreciative 
of all that you and Alia are doing for, for science and for the world. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Holden, thank you for inviting me. It's been my pleasure. Okay, Sean, back to you. Thank you, Dr. Thorpe. And thanks once again to Dr. Gary Michelson and to Michelson Philanthropies for supporting the new Immunology Prize and for making this conversation possible. And as always, our thanks to the Science Podcast audience for your interest and attention. Until next time. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe on the site or anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.